Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah 50, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. My people hath been lost sheep, their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains, they have gone from mountain to hill, they have forgotten their resting place. All that found them have devoured them, and their adversaries said, We offend not, because they have sinned against Jehovah, the habitation of justice, even Jehovah, the hope of their fathers. Remove out the midst of Babylon, and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as the he-goats before the flocks. For lo, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall set themselves in array against her. From thence she shall be taken. Their arrows shall be as of a mighty expert man. None shall return in vain, and Chaldea shall be a spoil. All that spoil her shall be satisfied, saith Jehovah. Because ye were glad, because ye rejoiced, O ye destroyers of mine heritage. Because ye are grown fat as the heifer at grass, and bellow as bulls. Your mother shall be sore confounded. She that bare you shall be ashamed. Behold, the hindermost of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of Jehovah, it shall not be inhabited, but it shall be wholly desolate. Everyone that goeth by Babylon shall be astonished and hiss at all her plagues. Put yourselves in array against Babylon round about. All ye that bend the bow, shoot at her. Spare no arrows, for she has sinned against Jehovah. Shout against her round about. She has given her hand, her foundations are fallen, her walls are thrown down. For it is the vengeance of Jehovah. Take vengeance upon her, as she has done, do unto her. Cut off the sower from Babylon, and him that handleth the sickle in the time of harvest. For fear of the oppressing sword, they shall turn everyone to his people, and they shall flee everyone to his own land. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria has devoured him, And last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Therefore, thus saith Jehovah of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I have punished the king of Assyria, and I will bring Israel again to his habitation, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan, and his soul shall be satisfied upon Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, saith Jehovah, The iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none, and the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. And I'll stop reading there. Now we've um, spent a, a couple of studies looking at the first several verses, and I just want to make a few comments um, early on, again, before we we start looking a little further along into this chapter, and that is to remind us that Babylon represents the kingdom of Satan, the world. 
Now the church, when once Satan entered in as the man of sin and took his seat, became a part of the kingdom of Satan and a part of uh, what is known as Babylon. And, and so we can't say the church isn't Babylon, but Babylon is representative of the world and or Satan's kingdom of darkness. And um, remember, for instance, um, Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13, verse 1 says, The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. And then in this context, what does God say? Verse 9, Behold, the day of Jehovah cometh, uh, the stars are falling, and the sun is darkened in verse 10, and it will punish the world in verse 11. Not the church, not just the church. This is the burden of Babylon. I will punish the world. Unless someone thinks, well, well, God just started off talking about Babylon, then he moved on into a different topic. Well, then why is it that uh, he begins to describe after saying, I'll punish the world and I'll shake the heavens in verse 13, that he speaks of the Medes and the Persians. And, and it was the Medes that conquered Babylon. And why, in, why return to discussing Babylon in verse 19? In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So the Lord begins discussing Babylon then he talks about clearly punishing the world, and then he goes right to back to referring to Babylon, because Babylon and the world are synonymous. It is Satan's kingdom of darkness. Now, also look at this verse. This is probably the one verse that says it all that we could turn to to prove that Babylon is representative of the world in the day of judgment. In Jeremiah 51, and uh, I'll read verses 48 and 49. The verse is really verse 49. Then the heaven and the earth and all that is therein shall sing for Babylon and for the spoilers shall come unto her from the north, saith Jehovah, as Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth. Now, what is God saying? As Babylon caused the slain of Israel to fall. Remember, the Lord raised up Babylon to come against Judea. And that was a picture of God raising up Satan, loosing him at the time of the end to come against the churches. Well, Babylon accomplished that. As Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, they did bring judgment according to God's will on the churches, so at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth. Now that's saying uh, uh, something different. It's it's basically the two-stage judgment in one verse. Judgment begins at the house of God. The slain of Israel fell. Babylon brought that to pass. And then the judgment expands and transitions to all the world. So at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth. And we, we need to keep that in mind, uh, because, well, 
Uh, God is, is teaching us that in Jeremiah 50 and 51 things that are pertinent and important for now at this time because he's describing the judgment on Babylon. For instance, remember back in Jeremiah 50 verse 2 when he said, Declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not. Say Babylon is taken. Now, now, if we understand Babylon is the judgment on the world and not just exclusively on the church, then God is, He's telling us, really correcting us, because initially we thought, well, we don't have to say anything further to the world. They heard the, the trumpet sound of the day of judgment. They heard all that already. And, and so there's no need to go back and, and share anything further. Except how do you do that and feed sheep? How can you feed sheep when you don't know who they are or where they are and, and conceal the information of Judgment Day, May 21? That's what they're interested in. That's what God used to draw them and to give them an ear to hear towards. It was the message of Judgment Day. And then all of a sudden, well, now we're just going to talk about the basics of the Bible and, and we don't say anything about Judgment Day. We don't say what happened about the Great Tribulation, Judgment Day, or any of that. Well, no, that's not feeding sheep. That's, uh, th- that's concealing the information that Babylon has taken. And God says, do not do that. Publish. Conceal not and say. He's even telling us exactly what to say. Babylon is taken. Judgment day did come upon the world. As Isaiah 13 points out, uh, when speaking of the burden of Babylon, I will punish the world. That is the taking of Babylon, the, the wrath of God. Well, we've seen here that God um, is encouraging us to share these things and and to uh, speak these things once again. And uh, by the way, that's that's also what's in view in Revelation 10, when uh, the Bible says about the little book in verse nine. I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and shall make thy belly bitter but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And God here is speaking to us today that we must share these things again, and we have to um, speak the truth that we have learned, and and this will reach the ears of God's people, and and that will be feeding sheep. Well, let's go back to Jeremiah 50, and uh, the Lord says here in verse 8 of Jeremiah 50, remove out of the midst of Babylon and go forth 
out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as the he goats before the flocks. Now, since Babylon is the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom, we, we looked at the command to come out of her, my people, to deliver yourself. And we saw repeatedly it has to do with delivering one's soul, with salvation. That's how someone is delivered from Babylon. Remember Egypt. When Israel came out of Egypt, what was, was that a picture of coming out of the church? They left Egypt, didn't they? Well, the leaving of Egypt was a picture of salvation, of coming out of the house of bondage, no longer being in captivity to sin and Satan. And God joins those two ideas together. Um, we, we saw in Isaiah 48, in verse 20, Go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans, with a voice of singing declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth, say ye, Jehovah has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts, he caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them, he clave the rock also and the waters gushed out. Go ye forth of Babylon. Do you remember, where is that? Where they came out of Babylon and then they were in the desert and the water came out of the rock. Anybody know what book that is? <laughs> You're not going to find it. Because it didn't happen when they came out of Babylon. It happened when they came out of Egypt. But you notice how God is saying, Go ye forth of Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, and and then, without any notice, the next verse says, And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. It, it, how can you write like that? Only God can. And only when you have an identical spiritual picture. That's the only time you can write like that. When the coming out of Babylon matches perfectly with the coming out of Egypt spiritually, then you can say uh, in one verse, go ye forth of Babylon. And in the next verse, describe something that happened when they came out of Egypt. Because it's the identical spiritual picture. And that's what God wants us to understand when the people of God are commanded to depart out of Babylon or come out of her, my people. It's a command to leave the kingdom of Satan. And and the only way to do that is to experience salvation. And and if you have not experienced salvation, you might have come out of a church, but you never left Babylon. You never left it at all. You you're still in darkness. And and this is what God is saying remove out the midst of Babylon and go forth out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as the he-goats before the flocks. Well, I don't know what you aspire to, <laughs> but here God is saying, be as the he-goats before the flocks. And why would He tell us that? Well, first thing, notice that in leaving Babylon, the Lord has in view sheep, flocks of sheep. Come out of Babylon and you're going to be like a flock of sheep. He did the same thing with Egypt in Psalm 78. Um, it says, 
in verse 51, and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength and the tabernacles of Ham, but made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. You see how the connection again is made when the Lord's people came out of Egypt, they were like, uh, they were like a flock of sheep. When you come out of Babylon, the Lord speaks of a flock of sheep. It's why the command to feed my sheep, it's not a crazy command. It's not way out there. No, it makes perfect sense. God gathered His people together. He, he formed them. He saved all the elect. And, and now He brings them out. And in the wilderness, it said in that psalm that He fed them and He cared for them and He protected them. And likewise, now God's people have left the kingdom of Satan and we've uh, returned spiritually to our own land and the Lord has in view feeding sheep. But why is a he-goat before the flock? Well, the, the, the word he-goat is translated once. It's normally translated he-goat or goat. It's translated one time um, as chief ones. In Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah 14 in verse 9, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. And that's the same word. The same word as, as he goats or goats in uh, Jeremiah 50. And, and that makes sense. Be as the chief ones before the flocks, before those coming out. In other words, you and I and, and all that the Lord is addressing here, we are to direct others into leaving Babylon, into coming out of that kingdom. And, and that's what feeding sheep is all about. We share information from the Bible and people grow in grace and understanding. And, you know, there's uh, a great multitude that God saved. And what do they know about the scripture? If they're in China, if they're in Africa, in, in places where the Bible didn't reach, or if they're in India, remember the vast majority of that great multitude are those that did not have the word of God. And, and so the Lord is speaking uh, to his people and, and you take the task upon you and you go before them and direct them and, and show them um, the things of my word concerning uh, this time period that we're now in. Well, let's go on to verse nine of Jeremiah 50. For lo, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country. And historically, this would be the collection of the Medes and the Persians. They, they came from the direction of the north against Babylon. We, we know that's a fact historically. But God here is actually referring to an assembly of his people, the ones that, that come against Babylon, 
are really the Lord Jesus Christ and the body of believers. And here the word assembly, it's often translated as congregation uh, in Psalm 149. In verse 1, praise ye Jehovah, sing unto Jehovah a new song and his praise in the congregation of saints. That's an assembly of saints. And that's the same word in verse 9, in assembly of great nations. And, and so the, uh, the body of believers are the ones that the Lord is using uh, to bring judgment upon Babylon. And we've discussed that before, how he's doing that through the salvation of all the elect. That is his weapon uh, against the rest of the unsaved of the world. Well, it goes on to say, and they shall set themselves in array against her. From thence she shall be taken. They will set themselves in array. Um, over in Joel chapter 2. In the book of Joel... We read of an attack, an assault, and, and, uh, this is the Lord and His army coming against His enemies in the day of judgment. And it says in Joel 2 verse 1, blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of Jehovah cometh for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness." Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses. And as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble. As a strong people set in battle array. And that's the word uh, that we had in Jeremiah 50 verse 9, array. They shall set themselves in array against her. So uh, here the army of the Lord has set themselves in array against the, the enemy of God in the day of judgment. And notice the appearance of them as the appearance of horses. And as horsemen, so shall they run. And that's um, very similar to Revelation 9 when the locusts go forth to... Uh, bring destruction for the five months of torment. It says in Revelation 9 and verse 7, And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. The crowns are the crowns of salvation that all of God's people have. And they are the locusts. They are the army that's recorded in Joel chapter 2. It's the same thing. And, uh, you know, the more we read about the day of judgment, we read about horses. The shapes of the locusts were like unto horses. Well, in Revelation 19, 
the Lord Jesus was seated upon a white horse and he had his army with him. In verse 14 of Revelation chapter 19, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Christ comes with his army, and they're all on horseback, and the um, in Joel 2, it said the appearance of them is as the appearance of horses and as horsemen. So shall they run. The locusts are likened to horses. Even, even the 200 million, a little further in Revelation 9, remember that 200 million, which, uh, I still think is, is the sum total. It's all of God's elect, it, even though it could be possible that it's not uh, it, it's not an exact number. That is, it, or it's not the actual number, but it, it appears to be. In Revelation 9, in verse 16, And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. That's 200 million. And I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. And them that sat on them, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions. Now their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. Horses everywhere. Horses. Um, the locusts look like horses. The the elect in Revelation 19 are upon white horses. The army in Joel chapter two are the appearance of horses and as horsemen. And the 200 million come in judgment upon horses. And remember Revelation 14, verse 20, when the Lord was trotting the winepress and the blood spilled out, where did it flow to? Unto the horse bridles. It, why the horse bridles? Because there is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, treading that winepress. And who is judging the world with him? His elect who are witnesses. They're right there along with him. And so the blood flows unto the horse bridles because it's uh, evidence that, that God's people are with him. And so in Joel, the, uh, the army who has this appearance of horses, they set the battle in array. And when you set the battle in array, that means you organize the battle. You order it. It's the same word that's used when they would order the wood upon the fire. They lay the wood out. And, and so they would set the battle. They'd have their, their cavalry over here and their infantry over there. And the battle would be laid out, uh, in array. And, and then you're, you're ready. Then you can begin doing battle and warring. And, and that's what God is saying. Uh, the day of judgment is like a battle. It is um, the kingdom of God against the kingdom of Satan. It is God taking vengeance of Babylon, of Satan's kingdom, because of his temple. It's the vengeance of the temple of the Lord. Well, let's, let's keep reading here in Joel 2 and verse 6. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. 
and they shall march everyone on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks, neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. Christ comes as a thief in a night, and so do his people. The, the people of God also are identified as a thief in the day of judgment. And it's just another one of those examples that what's true of the Lord is true of his body, the body of believers. The earth shall quake before them. The heaven shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And Jehovah shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of Jehovah is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Or who will endure it? Who will last to the end of it? Who will continue faithfully trusting the word of God throughout this period of the day of the Lord? And notice that verse 10 in Joel 2 pinpoints the time. When is that army on the march? When are they going to set the battle in array? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Well, how do we, how do we know that? How can we say that? It didn't say that here because verse 10 speaks of the, the sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And that's what Matthew 24:29 tells us happens immediately after the tribulation. And when was the great tribulation? May 21, 1988 until May 21, 2011. 23 years and and then came judgment day, the the exact 23rd year, the 8400th day, 7,000 years from the flood. And that day happened to have the underlying Hebrew calendar day of 217, which uh, matched perfectly with the date that the Lord shut Noah and his family into the ark and brought the flood upon the world. And, and so, you know, God isn't relenting with that point. Nobody's shown any of that to be wrong. It still fits in and locks in in such a way that nobody can uh, can argue. Nobody can say, oh, oh, no, those things don't come together and converge in that way. They still do. All that information of the Great Tribulation and the timeline from the flood meet together and converge on that one particular day. And uh, the Lord locked it in. And one of the reasons he did so is he was fully aware of nothing apparently happening on that day so that people would want to say, well, we were wrong. We were wrong. Uh, We can't trust the timeline. It's incorrect. But, however, God's people heard his voice. They realized that how could these things fit together so perfectly like pieces of a puzzle? And how could that date be locked in and, and, and it be wrong? And so they would not surrender that idea. And that is what causes the Lord's people to think, well, 
Well, since that information is still in place, and therefore the Bible still insists that that was the day of judgment, that's really what what is being said by that. The Bible still insists May 21, 2011 was the day of judgment, but nothing happened outwardly with a great earthquake. You know, it said here, the earth shall quake before them. But we didn't see any great earthquake. There was there was nothing visible outwardly at all. And that leads us to consider other possibilities. And this is what the child of God will do. Is there any other way? Is there any other possibility that God could be true and, and that that day could be judgment day? And, and yet not in the way we first thought. And so then we come to the Bible and we search the scriptures and we check it out. Well, let's look at other judgments in the Bible. What, what's the nature of those judgments in the Garden of Eden? What was the nature of that judgment upon man? Well, God said, and very clearly, in the day you eat of this one particular tree, you die. Remember that? And Adam heard it, and Eve knew about it, and then uh, Satan came to Eve in the form of the serpent and began disputing, you'll, you'll not sh- uh, surely die. Well, let, let's go back there in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, and... Um, verse 3, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, that's what Eve uh, told the serpent. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. For God does know in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And what else? What else? You know, you can imagine someone reading this after reading Genesis 2. In the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. And then he gets to chapter 3. And he eats of the tree. He disobeys God. The penalty was was very clear. Everyone understands what God said. In the day you eat, you die. And, And then Adam and Eve eat. And the only thing that seems to happen is now they're aware they're physically naked. And then God goes on to pronounce some curses but as you keep reading, well, Eve has children. She she has Cain and Abel. Cain rises up and slays Abel. And, and, and so she didn't die that day, obviously. And then you read of Adam. And in Genesis 5, it says in verse 3, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. 930 years later he died. Or we don't know exactly when 
he fell into sin when they ate of the tree, how long he had been alive, but it wasn't very long. The Bible gives indication that it was relatively fast and not too long after creation. But Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Now, now let's stop. Let's stop. Was there a mistake? Did God erroneously say in the day you eat thereof you will die? No. How about we, we dare not even think it? Did he lie? Of course not. The Bible says that it's an impossibility for God to lie. Well, he said, in the day you eat thereof, you will die. And yet they ate and they did not die. Physically. And now we know when we search the Bible. And you see, that's what it would lead us to do. Search the Bible. How is that possible? It's the same thing as saying judgment day on May 21, 2011 came. But it didn't come. But how is that possible? The Bible locks it in. Well, we search the Bible. Is there another solution? Is there another possible answer for how God said you will die on that day and they didn't die? And then we we turn to verses and I'm sure there's many of them, but um, one that comes to my mind is Ephesians 2 in verse 1. And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You're dead in sin. And, and then we read everything else the Bible says about souls of men and, and that man has a spirit. And then it, eventually we understand, oh, what God meant was in the day you eat thereof, Adam, you will die in your soul. But you know what? You can't see a soul. Souls are invisible. Can, can, I can't see anyone's soul here. Can you see my soul? I hope not. No, actually, 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 don't, I wouldn't want you to see my mind. The soul's okay. <laughs> but we can't see anyone's soul because it's in the spiritual realm. It's invisible. And, and, and you know what else God, uh, in, in saying that did not say? He didn't specify. He didn't clarify what he meant. He just said, in the day you eat thereof, you'll die. And he didn't say, you'll die in spirit. Now, that tells us that God, at least sometimes, does that. That you can hear a declaration from God that is very true, very faithful, very absolute. You will die. And yet, not complete. Not every bit of information has been revealed. And and it's only after that day came, and after they ate of the fruit of the tree, and they didn't fall down on the ground, they didn't just collapse, and they didn't die physically, that then I'm sure even Adam and Eve are wondering, now how did we die? And you know, Satan, now Satan, he's another one. What did he say? Uh, in Genesis 3, he said, uh, the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. 
And so Adam and Eve eat of the tree and then they have their aprons on covering their nakedness and and they're they're standing there as God pronounces the curses upon them, upon the serpent, upon the creation. But couldn't Satan have said, I told you, I told you I was right. Look, look, the fact that you're standing here means I was right. I was correct. Just as the emissaries of Satan said, no man knows a day or hour. You can't know May 21, 2011 is Judgment Day. It's an impossibility. You can't know that. And, And that's basically the mouthpiece of Satan. Because he's the one that was in the churches and congregations. And all that were there had to have the mark of the beast in order to to teach. And they're all saying, see, here's the Bible saying, the Bible guarantees it. This is an absolute. It's locked in. The information is so tight. The Bible guarantees it. God has said to the world on that day, you'll be judged. And comes along Satan with his mouthpiece. The, the image of the beast, the churches and congregations that for once and the only time that I can recall spoke with one voice and said, no, no man knows a day or hour. Well, then when apparently nothing happened on that day, didn't we tell you? Didn't we tell you? No man knows a day or hour. But you see, God allows that appearance. He would have allowed Satan in the garden to maintain that appearance. He would have allowed him to to lie further and to say, look, you didn't die. But they did die. The word of God was true. Something did occur, but in the spiritual realm, an area that man cannot see. And and so the Bible teaches spiritual judgment from the very beginning. The first judgment was a spiritual judgment. Was it a major judgment? Or was it some kind of obscure little um, side note kind of, of judgment that we, we really had, we're really um, trying our best to find the littlest thing? It's right there on the pages of the Bible. It's one of the most horrible judgments known to man. Everything we see around us with this sin-cursed world, all the evil we read about in the newspapers and see daily and in our own selves is a result of this judgment that we died in sin in that day that God said we would. And so the question is, is there such a thing as a spiritual judgment? And the answer is absolutely yes. Without any doubt, yes. The Bible teaches spiritual judgments. And then, of course, you can read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane or or the judgment on the churches, which were both spiritual in character. And, And they're also some of the most major judgments in the Bible. We really get to the point where we ask ourselves the question, Tell me a major judgment, not a historical judgment, but a major judgment that wasn't spiritual. When when we look at the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane and the judgment on the churches. And and so we 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 do have that possibility after um we're we're left 
in confusion at first. We're left wondering what did God do? And we turn to the scriptures, we do see that that is a very real possibility that God brought about the day of judgment. And of course, since he locked in that particular date, it goes beyond possibility for the true believer. We realize it did occur. Well, um, back in Jeremiah 50, in verse 9, For lo, will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall set themselves in array against her. From thence she shall be taken. Their arrows shall be as of a mighty expert man. None shall return in vain. And here God is speaking of arrows. Um, the Bible likens arrows to what comes out of our mouths. Uh, yeah, it's very similar to a sword. Um, for instance, in Psalm 57, I think it's in verse 4. It says, um, my soul is among lions and I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. So the arrow spiritually would represent what comes out of a person's mouth. Now, if it's a wicked person, then it's, it's um, negative. But if it's child of God in, in this context, this is what God wants. He told us to conceal not, but proclaim. That is to speak. And the words we speak are as arrows because they're going to pierce. They're, they're going to um, hit the mark. And, and that's why it says their arrows shall be as of a mighty expert man. None shall return in vain. It's not going to miss. It, it, right, it's it's the word of God. It's the truth. The Lord is opening up, and these arrows are going to hit the target that the Lord has intended for them to hit. And and by the way, their arrows, and it says there, so it is the believers, as as God reveals truth to us, shall be as of a mighty expert man. The word expert is also translated as wise. So, uh, for instance, it's the word in Daniel 12 in verse 10. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And the word wise is this word expert. So we can see how arrows have to do with words that are derived from the scripture and and these arrows will be of a mighty, wise man. Of course, um, in the first instance, that's Jesus. He is the personification of wisdom. And the word of God is wisdom. And so the arrows that come forth from the Bible are of a mighty expert man of, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, let, let's just look at one Last passage and, and before we close in Isaiah chapter five, beginning in verse 26. And he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far and will hiss unto them from the end of the earth. And behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. Now this is a, another parallel passage to Joel two or Revelation nine, where the Lord is bringing his people to battle. None shall be weary, nor stumble among them. None shall slumber, nor sleep. 
neither shall the girdle of their loins be loosed, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs shall be counted like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions. Yea, they shall roar, lay hold of the prey, and shall carry it away safe, and none shall deliver it. And in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look unto the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened in the heavens thereof. And again, that that last verse identifies and pinpoints the time in God's timetable of judgment day this time. And verse 28 said, whose arrows are sharp and all their bows bent. So it's a figure that the Lord is using to describe his people that will be sharing truth from the Bible. And, and when we share it with the world, we necessarily have to share it with the world. The, the intention is not to point the finger and say, now you're under judgment that God's wrath is upon you and there's no salvation for you. That's not the intent. The intent is to reach those that God did save. But if we knew precisely who they were, we would go to them. But we don't know. Just like if we knew uh, in the day of salvation who the elect were, we would have just gone to them. But But we had to share with everyone and God searched and, and found his sheep. And now we share with everyone and God searches and feeds his sheep. It's the same process. It's just one step uh, along. Well, okay, we'll stop here and we'll close um, with the word of prayer and then we'll break for lunch. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the the future that awaits. We thank you for the promises that are um, still uh, still in your word and and still loudly um, testifying that these things will shortly come to pass. We pray that you would help us to have patience. Um, our souls lie in patience or in. In Christ, we pray that you would help us to wait upon you until you work these things out and to continue turning to the Bible and, and searching and asking questions and, and seeing, uh, if, if it's possible, if someone's out there right now, may you give them grace to ask that question. Is it possible that you did bring about the day of judgment in this way. We pray that you would lead them further into truth and all of us um, into understanding and you would grant us more wisdom. We ask for your blessing that we don't deserve it, but only for Christ's sake we, we do ask and pray that you would bless each one here and those listening and, and be with any that are traveling. And we pray for uh, Robert and Stephen and their families, we, we ask that you would uh, be a comfort to them and soothe uh, their pain, and we, we pray that you would bless them. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship Sunday Bible Study. 
For more information or to hear additional Bible studies, be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com.